wild world. Presented by... Do you know Raisin, the natural wine app? It's a guide to natural winemakers, bars, restaurants, and wine shops all around the world guaranteed 30% natural wine. This goes hand-in-hand with local, seasonal, and organic food. Not to mention, these are people with a locally sourced mindset. So you're going to find the best spots to eat and drink well wherever you are in the world by downloading the app at Raisin.Digital. And Disgorgeous, the only wine podcast. Disgorgeous. And this is Evan Donovan, the owner of Demimond, and I want to thank Wild World for having us as a sponsor. You can come over and check us out at 257 Verrett Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Lots of good food, great wines, great coffee. Demimondbk.com. All right, so our third panel today is uh, New G, uh, the new guard in uh, New York City, uh, those selling natural wine and working in uh, the natural wine and food and beverage industry in New York. And Alice Firing, uh, wine writer, uh, is going to introduce this panel. Enjoy. Hi. Um I was just making a bit of a joke that we need to get some underage child here to really show the next generation. Because one thing that we don't have yet, but will come after this generation, is a generation of wine professional that would only have been raised on natural wine. So I think what we have here is maybe a spectrum that shows a slight transition point. But anyway, let me go back a little bit. So we're next generation. I am definitely old generation at this point, which is very sad, but it is true. Um, Been writing about this stuff since before it was called natural wine, since 2000, and I've written five books on natural wine at this point. (laughs) And that's it. That's it. That's it. No more. (laughs) Um, I think at this point it'll go all into oral history. But anyway, back when I was writing about natural wine before it was called natural wine, I could only drink at friend's house, my apartment, or go to France. And that was the case from 2000, 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, started getting a little bit better, but not much. And then finally, when 10 Bells happened, which was 11 years ago, at least there was some wine within walking distance. And now there are any number of places, mostly in Brooklyn. <laughs> so I look, and with some outposts in New York, Amanda, now that you're represented in New York, um, that it has gotten safer. But what happens from here? You know, as a wine writer, I was just wine writing. Um, But these people are on the forefront of of actually getting the wine into your glasses from importer to wine, wine on the floor, sommeliers, restaurant, and making sure that you get to drink good stuff. It is my personal feeling that this natural wine revolution basically is going to be changing the way we drink 
in the future and not just for people interested in natural wine. This is the little engine that could, that is going to change for the foreseeable future what we are drinking. It is a tiny, tiny footprint that it has a major impact. And with that, I am going to present Lou, who will introduce the fabulous panel. And thank you. Some of you I know, some of you I've just met. Um, so I'm going to ask you all to introduce yourself briefly, and then I'm going to ask some questions. So, Amanda. Hi, everyone. I'm Amanda. My friends call me Smelts. Um, I'm the wine director, beverage director at um, Estella in Soho, and it's sister restaurant, Cafe Ultra Paradiso. Um, yeah. Woo. Is this working? Hi. Hi. I'm Kirk Sutherland. I'm the beverage director for Roberta's and Blanca here in New York and in Los Angeles, where I met Lou. Uh, oh, hello. Uh, my name is Juan Grace. I'm working in, at Olmstead in Brooklyn, a little small space. Um, and also uh, our sister restaurant, Maison Yaki, across the street, which is a much smaller list, but doing the wine buying there off of Vanderbilt near Prospect Park. My name is Alvaro de la Viña, uh, owner of Selections de la Viña. We import uh, Spanish wine, a little bit of Portuguese wine, and uh, that's it for the moment. Hello. Uh, my name's Jen Watson, and this is where I work. And thank you so much for coming here today to talk about natural wine. Thanks for hosting us. So let me ask just some questions about uh, your relationship to natural wine and uh, the context in which you sell it and the reception of it. So I'll start with Amanda because she's at the very end of the row. Um, Amanda, talk a little bit about the backdrop for you. And as as Alice intimated, um, I think all of us are not 21 years old. Uh, but uh, at, the, at the same time, uh, uh, natural wine has become the object that we all want to work with. Um, how did that become the case with you? Um, I, think, I think it's similar to many people who sort of get into it. Um, I, I started working in fine dining restaurants when I was in college, which is about 15 years ago now, which is just, definitely means I'm not 21. Um, I started learning on Parker wines, you know, domestic wines that were... Um, Napa, 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 and then some Sonoma, and then some Lodi, and then um, you learn all of your California appellations real quickly. Um, and then, you know, there's one or two bottles over the course of those early years when I was learning to be a fine dining captain and eventually a cellar hand that were like, oh my God, these are completely different. Um, that was in the mid-2000s, like the early aughts from 2003 to 2006 or so. And um, then I moved to New York, and the same thing started to happen to me in like 2009 I'd say, about the, uh, thereabouts, but with much more frequency. So there would be bottles that would get into my glass while I was working at a restaurant that was not fine dining, but that was definitely, like, elevated, that would strike me as being completely different from the rest of the wine list. So it's not that anyone came to me with the label natural wine, um, but rather that certain wines were kind of blowing my hair back, and, and I asked myself the question, what's going on here? Um, luckily, there were people nearby to kind of answer that um, and to give me that label natural wine. So that, that kind of happened slowly and gradually from a classical wine background and fine dining 
into more contemporary dining and people kind of beginning to dip their toes into these wines in New York um, around 2008 and 2009. So that's how. Were, were you responsible for putting together wine lists then or did that come later? Um, in the first restaurants in, that I was in in New York, no, I was working as a floor som, which was a thing that became more common, like we were listening to in our last panel, only after the early aughts. So I opened um, in the Ace Hotel in 2009, I opened the Breslin and the John Dory with wine director Carla Rizuski, who was definitely not a natural wine advocate, but also responded very intensely to wine in general. Um, so she would sort of accidentally list these wines, I think, on her wine list and um, loved them vehemently, but not because there was any kind of guiding principle at hand um, but rather just because instinctively these wines tasted really good and so I was exposed to them there and with her would get into conversations about why they were different and why I loved them so I didn't start writing my own wine list until 2012 when I took over the wine program at Roberta's in Bushwick where Kirk is now yeah so Kirk how do you balance uh, your desire to have well-made natural wines on your list and patrons who may not be ready to let their freak flags fly yet. Well, I'm, I'm in a kind of unique position because I came in after Amanda had already made Roberta's kind of like a natural wine destination. So people kind of associate that place with like the freaky fun stuff because we're a bunch of like fucked up punks doing all sorts of weird shit all the time there. So... The thing that's most important for me to kind of balance all of that out is to make sure that guests, when they come in, aren't always put off by the fact that, like, Roberta's is a really weird place where sometimes the ceiling's leaking. Uh, But I want to make sure that people can find things that they're going to enjoy and can actually, like, seek through the list and find grapes that they know how to pronounce and feel a little bit more comfortable ordering. But then the fact that everything that we purchase is really responsibly farmed is the thing that's most important to me. Like, I don't want anyone to walk out of these restaurants and feel like they were, like, assaulted by some weird wine. They're already being assaulted by, like, weird music and weird servers. So they might as well get something fun, right? And, Zwan, how about you? Uh, what were the, the your initial forays into wine list construction were they all natural wines or was it more classical wines and then you were able to slowly over time 100% in fact when I first started at Olmstead they I was thinking about the panel before I was talking to Alvaro about this is like the panel before sets the tone and so you can latch on to whoever you so desire like a niece to a particular favorite aunt and so even with a classical, there could be a whole classical panel here, and they would still have a panel that would follow that latched onto them. So I think when I first started at Olmsted, they were of the classical upbringing. They came from Per Se and Blue Hill Stone Barns um, and Alinea. And so they were starting their own place, and so their ethos was very much absolutely 100% not at PR people telling me you do we do not say natural wine like do not do it and they didn't say it like that because clearly I work for these people and I love them <laughs> disclaimer but um, it, it it was a thing for sure like let's not make this this is not a thing this is not a banner this is not something that we that we are necessarily supporting at the same time they knew who I was and where I had been and even with like you know 
boule and like bigger fine dining restaurants that were years ago coming up through certain retail stores and, and restaurants that were about this, you kind of find your favorite aunt or uncle and you latch on to them. And so I think that's kind of what happened with me. And so to, you want to go in and do the job. You want to get hired and like, you know, at that point it very much is like, okay, I've been hired to do this job. Let me do this job. But the heart wants what the heart wants. And so it was inevitable that and it took, I'm going to say about two years. I've been there two years this, this month in October where it was like slowly chiseling away to the point of first trust and then to like just carte blanche. Like we, we know that we are now coming and being like, what's this, what's this, what's this? And I'm talking about the actual owners, not even like staff who are going to do that regardless. So it was not necessarily the easiest hill to climb because they had set the tone from the beginning. But I think when you come in a, in a real heartfelt way and you can like present something that, you know, label aside tastes good and there's a story that goes with the ethos of the actual restaurant, it's very difficult to to shun that. And I've seen them completely do a complete 180 on what that list was and what it is now and how they support it now. So it's been a so little journey. Did Hearing this from both you and Amanda, did having that backdrop of classical fine dining and knowing blue chip producers help you, uh, give you confidence and give you some steam or was that a deficit? I think for me coming up in fine dining and being like, I want to do wine. It was very much at that time, like you need to get into some type of class to make this happen. And so from there, you're just trying to chase the, the Psalms that you're under at that point, which is like knowledge and regions and grapes of that region and profile and all the things. And so I think maybe the generation after us might just come straight in, but we were kind of like one toe in natural, one toe in like class, like really trying to like, you know, get some type of Psalm certification, which is totally great. I'm 100% about that, um, to be, to be clear. Um, but I think that owners at the time were probably like, okay, well, you do have this certification on your resume, so come on in. And now it's at the point where you've done it so long that it's just like probably a trust. It's just like people just trust you at this point. To jump off of that a little bit, I was super fortunate in my comeuppance in that I worked in coffee for a really long time, and then I worked for Andrew Tarlow, and Lee took me under her wing and really, like, taught me everything that I know. So I was, like, being mentored by one of the most important people in the natural wine world. And I worked with Jen at Reynard when we first opened, and I was fortunate to have all of my education, foundationally, be from Lee Campbell. So, you know, throwing it back. <laughs> Love her. I mean, I will, I will speak because I, I really was steeped in a lot of sort of high-end blue-chip categories. Like, you, you have to learn Bordeaux, you have to learn Burgundy, you have to learn Napa, you have to learn Lodi, you have to learn Champagne, and then after that, you don't have to learn anything at all, right? So that was kind of what, that was like what work was like for me for, ever since I was a teenager and actually got shoved into real restaurants. Um, and I think, you know, 
I'm from South Central Pennsylvania. My people are working class and poor. Um, we drink Yingling, and that is what we drink, and that is all we drink, unless you are hiding vodka from your mom in your bedroom back home. Um, that is how I think tons of people drink in the United States, and. You know, like Zwan is intimating, in order to gain access to wine still in the United States, there's usually a class dimension, right? There's usually an economic dimension to it because wine has been kind of taken over and made into a commodity and made into a luxury commodity. And so in order to gain access to wine, you had to work in fine dining. Like that's how it was basically up until I'd say about 10 years ago. Um, So that means, you know, 15 years ago um, when I first started working in restaurants of that character, it was like, okay, this is how you learn about wine. Um, now I know that that gives me a language to deal with people who are used to only dealing with wine in that context, right? Like, I know how to talk to the people who only have wine in super high-end contexts because I worked in those contexts. Um, that said, I am tired of having that conversation. I no longer want to have that conversation. I do not give a single fuck if all you drink is Bordeaux. Um, it is really hard to restrain yourself once you're completely convicted about natural wine. It's really hard to deal with people over and over and over again being like, I'll have a big red wine. And you're like, I don't fucking care. You know, um, <laughs> is the truth. I don't care. Um, it's tough because you, you, you know, everyone thinks, oh my God, natural wine is such a trend and it's such a fad and whatever. And I would say when we're at work in Manhattan at now Michelin starred restaurants that are tiny and rough looking um, and really well acclaimed with extraordinary chefs and really truly brilliant food that makes me feel alive and then a wine list that makes me feel alive and then we have people walking in wearing pearls asking for Veuve Clicquot Rosé and you're just like I can't believe this shit is still happening but it 100% is in in the vast majority of the world you know and so there is still a lot of work to do and I am, I'm exhausted by the kind of classical wine conversation, and I'm going to have to have it until I'm old. You know, So I, I do think there's an advantage to learning that stuff because then you understand the language and the context. If you're selling it on the floor actively in a retail situation or at your bar or wherever you are, like the people who are actually out there hustling late at night to sell wine, um, you have to have that conversation still, and we're going to have to until we're 80, um, which is fine. But the, the nice thing is, is that every once in a while you do have people who come in who came up oh, sort of more with natural wine or are really open and really excited and that like, that's a life-saving conversation for me. So it's both an advantage and I think a disadvantage is the, for, for me at least, is the truth. I also think just to jump in is that to have been to class as we all have, Nine times out of ten, we can still get that person who comes in in pearls exactly what they want because the understanding is a whole circular breadth. And it's like, you want a flavor profile. It doesn't necessarily have to say Bordeaux on it, but because I see you and I can read this table and I know the list, I 100%, I mean, most of the time they're like, mm, 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 show tastes good. And you've now schooled somebody because you can put the two things together and... and do your job and get them something they want to drink. Alvaro, I don't know your backstory about how you got into importing Spanish wine. Can you talk a little bit about that and how uh, working with Spanish natural wine works for you or worked for you initially? Sure. Um, my background is very different from all these guys. Um, I have a background in agriculture. Um, I, uh, my father imported citrus fruit from Spain. And uh, when I moved here from Spain in 2009, 
Um, I did that for four years before starting my company. So agriculture has always been a very important part of my life. And um, it always sort of threw me back how um, in conventional wine, people would never really talk about agriculture. So I, th I find that in natural wine, agriculture becomes a part of the equation. And that's why it, I, I felt really attracted to it. Um, it also was the wines that I tasted and actually moved me. I, like I said, I don't have a background in wine, so I don't have certifications. I don't have, but when I tasted natural wine, it made me feel a certain way that I never felt with conventional wine. So um, that's, a, I think, a really important part of why I decided to take that route. Um, and at the time, there was just not much from Spain. I felt there was a lot being made, but you couldn't really find it here. You know, so I saw an opportunity and kind of redirected my father's company um, from importing citrus fruit to importing wine, something that I was a little bit more passionate about and, and was not as commoditized as, as citrus fruit. People became, you know, it had become um, a thing where people only cared about price and volume and didn't care how it was grown. And uh, with wine, people cared about the stories, how they were made. Um, who was making them where and this was something that you know, I really love to do I felt like I was bringing a little piece of my culture, you know to the to the US so I felt that um, Importing wine was a great way to do that to share my Spanish culture here with friends and, and, and customers and, and, and everybody When did you start your first? Container. When was your first, the first wine my, you brought over? My first container was September of 2013. So we went on uh, six years now. So, I bought uh, from that we, container. That's right. It me. <laughs> I loved it. That's right. Amanda was at Roberta's at the time. So, uh, you know, she's obviously, I've learned a lot from, from these guys and the, the, the people that were just ahead of us. Obviously, they laid down a lot of the groundwork that I think made it easy for, for us as, as the newcomers, you know. How did you know who to sell to? Um, knocking on doors, talking to people, drinking around, going to tastings, meeting people. Um, yeah, I started on my bike, actually, um, with six bottles in, in each side on, in panniers and would just ride my bike around the city, um, kind of bringing these wines around, kind of like Jenny, you know, bringing wines from Spain in my suitcase and, and, and visiting a lot of these accounts that I, that I knew were working with natural wine and might be interested in what we do. And, uh, um, yeah. Jen, <laughs> talk a little bit about your backdrop and uh, the origins of your relationship to natural wine. Uh, sure. So I went to college in St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, have some really weird degrees that have absolutely nothing to do with anything at all in this life, and fell pretty quickly into restaurants because of that. And um, loved cooking, loved gardening, loved being in the earth, and got really involved in a lot of food justice work as a kid. And as I was understanding more and more about agriculture, kind of speaking to Alvaro's point, understanding like everything that we consume, is, it, it's so integral to our being and, and the earth's being, and realizing like wine is 100% an agricultural product, just as is beer and anything that's not a distillate, right? And so as a kid, I also come from Yingling land, actually not, because that's Youngstown. I'm from Ashland, Ohio, which is south of Cleveland. <laughs> We drink hams there, yeah. 
that's that's still a thing. They still make that. Um, it's beer flavored water, but yeah. So like just putting it all together, like this is a product from the earth. Why on earth would I drink anything that didn't make sense to the earth? And I was super lucky. Uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul had an incredible food scene in the 90s. Also, apparently, I'm old, too. Um, and I worked in some really amazing restaurants with some great wine lists, coming up with a very classical background, selling Romane Conti, you know, $2,000 bottles of wine. Paid my rent. I got to go to Mexico for, like, six weeks at a time, often. It was pretty great those days. But uh, I got introduced to Grower Champagne, and that was, as, you know, Zev would tell us the least natural thing in the world, but it was my first introduction to humans making wine in a really beautiful way that was not the Vive Clicquot that I was, you know, selling to all the tables. It was this really different, really radical tasting champagne. And I was like, wow, this is really fucking cool. I need more of this. How do I save all of my dimes to drink more champagne? And so the more I got into that, I met a lot of amazing wine people in Minneapolis at the time. And the conversations got going and we started realizing that 100% there were amazing producers out there making all this dope fucking wine that didn't have the natural stamp on it. There wasn't a biodynamic stamp back then. Demeter certification didn't happen until, you know, later, but at least on the massive level. But it just made so much sense. And like, we just got those conversations going and we started making changes on these big lists where, you know, you had all of the very Francy Francy stuff and then you had like this weird shit, like skin contact wine in 1999, you know? It was like, what is Radicon? I don't know, but it's delicious. Like, what is this? You know, why am I thinking about what's in my glass? And that's for me, like, that was what it was. I want to be thinking about everything I put into my body and when the liquid in the cup is like confusing and contemplative. It's like, fuck, this is cool. I need more of this. And I want to share this with people. With regards to sharing, um, how do you crystallize that agricultural moment and communicate that, or do you communicate that to customers? Uh, I'm 100% on page with Swan and, and, and everybody right here where... Knowledge is everything, right? Like, because we went to the class, I'm not certified in anything, by the way. Like I said, two really expensive, useless degrees. I don't have any kind of wine certification, and I never will. And I'm not against it, it's just not where I'm going. I think you have to drink a lot of bad wine to get there, and I just don't have time for that. But how we share is like, it, it, it's, you, you, you can proselytize to the people who wanna listen. You gotta read the table. Like, this room wants to listen to us talk about all this weird shit. A lot of people don't. A lot of people want a big red wine. And so you're like, dope, I got you. You come back. Like, one of the greatest, like, delights of my life was the year that I was at Reynard. Um, Lee Campbell is, I mean, the... She's Lee Campbell. I mean, like, what a mentor. If you're going to have a mentor, holy cow. I've had some pretty cool people in my life, but nobody like Lee. And selling her list on the floor every night was everything because... Reynard, unlike all of Tarlo's other restaurants, was like the weird one. It was the Baltazar, right? And I, Baltazar was my first job in the city. So I'm, I came up in that. I know how to talk to those humans. 
And there's nothing more inspiring, I think, than coming to a table where someone is really ready to spend $2,000 on a fucking bottle of, like, Petrus. And you're like, cool, I got you. I'll be right back. You know, and you come back with a bottle of wine and, 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 and you show them the label. And they're like, I have no idea what that is. And I'm like, don't worry about it. It's cool. Do you know about Ornette Coleman? And they're like, no, who's that? And I'm like, it's a cool jazz guy. I'm going to open this bottle of wine right now and then we're going to decant it and you're going to taste it. And you pour them the taste and they're like, what? This is fucking amazing. And you're like, yeah, it's cool because I'm good at what I do. And you like this juice, right? And they love the juice and they're like super cool. And then you're like, cool, that's $80, not $800. And they're like, what? And I'm like, and, 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 and it's delicious, right? You know? And that's it, right? It's like- we, were, we were super fortunate too because... On the floor at Reynard at that time, RIP, I miss it. Um, we, were, we were managers there, and there weren't floor psalms. All of the managers had to like sit down with Lee and learn the wine list. So it was, you're running the floor, but also you're the wine steward, and you're going to run food, and you're going to bust tables, and you're going to reset, where it gave us a foundation that later meant that Jed and I could go off and do these things that we've done and become successful beverage professionals and it's all... Is that, is that what we are, Kirk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Am that's I a successful beverage that's, professional? That's what we are now. Let's raise a hand. Am I a... <laughs> yeah, and, and at, at that time, the way in which service was run at that restaurant was like nothing else I had ever experienced where everyone did every single thing. So... And I've taken everything that I've learned from Lee and have extended it into all of the programs that I've run since I left Reynard. So I'm still a little foggy about how that transition happened from the OG folks like Arnaud to your generation. And I, I, I hear some details, but what, so on, maybe you could address this a little bit. Um, what was it like to start fielding these wines and consistently putting them on lists, uh, what, what was the love, what was the hate? The love and the hate. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to address the first part of that question and say that it really was at Thirst Wine Merchants where I began to realize what natural wine was. It was um, very much... Uh, I was a very strong Kermit Lynch presence and I knew who he was but I didn't know and at that point um, I was working with a dear friend now who's here Mike DeCruz and Amelia and Michael and Ariana Rolich and I was there just a couple days of a uh, week and also working in restaurants I still want to like I didn't know restaurants I just come from retail so I still kind of wanted to have like a foot in there but this particular shop took that veil off in a way that I was not expecting. I didn't go in looking to learn about natural wine. It was in my neighborhood. It was close. I could walk there. This is Thirst you're talking about. Thirst Wine Merchants, yes, yes. Uh, the original Thirst Wine Merchants, and kudos to the new one as well. But at the time, being in that shop um, with the people that were in there working and, and with the inventory that they had, the conversation just got deeper and it was not, I was completely unaware that people cared about the actual winemaker and what they were doing and like followed them like hip hop heads and knew this release versus that mixtape and what this tasted like. And I was just like, okay, I literally shut my fucking mouth 
and was kind of blown away and was just like, I'm just going to listen. We would go and eat dinner at Romans every Sunday after, um, after our shift at uh, Thirst. And Mike and Ariana would pull bottles. We would buy them, of course. And, <laughs> and we would go and eat. And the people at Romans would send food out. And we would open up bottles and share them. And it be the community just like now at, at this fair became a little bit tighter and a little bit tighter and a little bit tighter. And it, it, it got to the point where I learned so much more from the people at those dinners and them already having a breadth of knowledge and, and interest and, you know, they've been digging, they've been digging for so long um, that to take notes from them, again, like you said, became like, let me just, it, you know, it, it's unveiled. You now see a, a, whole new, a whole new side to this wine thing when you think that it's just fine dining psalms on the floor and doting around the room and, you know, pouring beautiful bottles, it, it hit home to me because we're now having dinner together. It's a community. And the things that they were able to share and just listening to them talk to each other, I was just blown away. It's like discovering hip-hop for the first time or punk for the first time. You're like, these fools know what the hell they talking about. I don't. So I'm going to listen. And I did. And from that, you go back to work and you're like, you're a little bit changed because you've been, again, as I was in a retail shop for a couple nights, and then now you're back in the restaurant. So the two kind of, you know, one thing pays the bills and one thing, you know, feeds the soul. And so um, that was kind of where it began for me to understand that there is a style of winemaking and a community that, that matters. And then you actually see, like, importers like Alvaro come in, and they're like, you know, pouring, and I worked for Zev for a year, and because I was just, like, so into this thing of, like, how is this even a thing? Like, I didn't even understand. I still kind of don't. <laughs> yep. But we're here, and it, it, it evolved, and I think, because it's an, it was very organic, you know, we attempt to, to make it one thing, like, oh, you want to do this? You need to do this. And then once you go further into the rabbit hole, it starts to, like, the layers kind of come off and change and morph and then and you also morph and so then I mean you become who you are now and you're like this is what it is this is what I can talk about this is what I feel passionately about um, and I'm, I don't know if I'm even answering the question anymore <laughs> but I that's mean, where we're being at yeah I wanted to add to it because um, we mentioned the OG's made it made it easier for us but I think it's still hard yeah. to sell natural wine and one of the hardest for me, uh, one of the hardest things for me selling to the trade has always been, and I don't know if this is just an excuse or if they actually mean it, but when buyers say, I love this wine, but I don't think I can sell it. No, they're telling the truth, Alvaro. They can't sell it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, so, I'm, not, I'm not dogging on them either. Like, it's, it's a struggle. It's but, a real challenge. But... But don't you want to sell wines that you love is well, what yeah, I'm trying of course. to get at. And, and won't it make your job more fun? Yeah, but fun is like if you're lucky. Yeah. Fun yeah. is if you're lucky. Really, like, you know, if I take care of 150 people in a night in service, and most nights I will, maybe 100 to 200, and I sell 25 bottles of wine a la carte to different tables from off the wine list, and, and that's a really, that's like a good busy night, I'd say... Five of them, that, that bottle is going to land with that guest and like really make them feel something. 
and they're going to look up at me with like stars in their eyes. And I think Bill at the last panel, he's right. Like some people are like, yes, this bottle was very good. And then you, they like send you on your way. But there is a thing, there is a thing with natural wine where there's like, at the, whisk, at the risk of sounding too woo-woo, um, there, there's energy in them and there's vitality in them and totally. there's spark. And that, those five bottles out of the 25, I'm looking for like a 20% hit rate every it's, night it's, at work, you know? <laughs> and I, those five people that look up at me with stars in their eyes, I'm like, okay, I did it. That was my job for the night. The other 20 people looked up at me like, what the fuck are you doing to me? You're wasting my time. You're a woman and you're young. You don't know what you're talking about. This isn't Bordeaux. And it's exhausting, you know? And, and that's me and I'm good at it. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm quite good at it. I can get people to drink a whole bunch of swill they don't want to touch. Um, and, and I still have this kind of pushback, you know? So for people who are starting out at it, they're, they're a first-time buyer or they're a new floor som, and they don't have someone, like, coaching them through those difficult moments, those psychological exchanges, the, the weird socioeconomic stuff that comes out of people when they're talking about luxury goods. It's like you may as well be trying to sell them a yacht. Like, they're acting the same way. Um, so even if you believe in wine wholeheartedly, you're coming up against a bunch of obstacles that are largely unspoken and certainly not, um, I think, discussed in the trade with clarity often enough. Um, so th- those people who you get the trade, are they're not kidding. They yeah. probably can't sell them, which is, I mean, it's But which, it what kind of buy, wines do you buy? Do you buy the, the wines? ones I love? <laughs> exactly. There you go. So when you tell me that I love this wine, but I can't sell it, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's like an oxymoron almost. You well, know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it wouldn't, isn't it easier for you? Like, I wouldn't be able to sell something I don't love or like, you know? So you're almost canceling out what, what you love. So, something you know? that was very difficult for me in this new job that I'm doing was opening up our Los Angeles location. And we opened up with, like, a very extreme, no-sulfur, uber-natural wine list. That is so dumb. And shit got sent back all the time. I was like... I love you, but Jesus. It was, yeah, it was, it was a big mistake. Because, thank God, Lou's in Los Angeles, but I was having to, like, relearn everything again, because now I'm having to run a list here in New York where we've made those steps and there's a pretty good base of knowledge with the general consumer that comes into this establishment, which is the polar opposite of the people that come into our Culver City location inside of Platform, which is an outdoor fucking mall. (laughs) And they're, they're tasting these wines by the glass and being like, nope, nope, nope. And I would see the comp reports every single week, and I'd be like, well, we lost $600 worth of wine. Time to and change your, it up a little your, bit. In your opinion, these wines were not fucked up, No. Right? I mean, they're, they're things that I buy here, but I had to change the perspective of what I was buying out there because it's such a different market. I think but also... Oh, oh, go ahead. It's just kind of playing into that. It's just like, uh, I think that... It, all palettes are one thing and like the, the, the market that we have here in New York is one thing and Brooklyn is one thing and Manhattan is one thing and we're kind of like you know you think about Jenny and Lee and Bill they're here in the city Thirst is here in Brooklyn like we had this great advantage of tasting these things and being kind of ahead of that curve so when we go to LA it's not just the New York market which I guarantee you when I pour wine for a table like you all are saying 
they can take one smell and be like, mm, mm. And when they start to pass that glass around on that taste board, it's just like. The moment where someone's here. like, ooh, that's different. <laughs> that's interesting. Oh, that's, I don't that's know. Different. Do you want to taste it? Karen, what do you think? It? Karen? I know Is we're it doing. Okay? Karen? And that's at the tables here. Karen doesn't, Karen doesn't like, like it. it. Karen's going to no. send it back. And the bottle will get sent back or we'll have to do something else. But that's, that's very localized. And we think about, you know, New York kind of being like this nucleus and things kind of permeating from it. We think about L.A. and Austin and all the places where wine fairs and where raw is popping up, Miami. It's even harder. And I can't even possibly imagine what it is to sell to that consumer because it, it, we can sell things that we love for sure, but it's just like, is this consumer ready for this? Does it taste good? Yeah, we think so, but we've been kind of raised on this and it's been very much a part of our, our culture and then, you know, you leave New York and then all the hell is going to break loose. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll, like, I'll, go ahead. I'd sell some of your wine in LA and people would be like, I'll have a glass of Alberino. I'm like, <laughs> kill me now. That they're actually naming me, not the grape. <laughs> uh, Alvaro, I had uh, one quick question. Um, in the context of selling, importing and selling Spanish natural wine, uh, there's such a uh, routinized idea of what to expect from Spanish wine that it became this kind of fossilized category. And then people like you and Jose Pastor selling wines that f- fall far outside the domain of Jorge Ordonez. And uh, what's it, what has it been like and what is it like to try to pitch wines that um, are not oaked and not fucked? It's very hard, actually. People always come to us as Spanish importers saying, we want your biggest Spanish red. And we'll give them our Rioja and they're like, What? No, this is not. I sell a lot is of this that even too. Rioja? Is this even Rioja? Is this even Rivera del Duero? Like, they can't believe, you know, that we don't have these really, you know, over-extracted, over-ripe, over-oaked, because that's the concept that a lot of people have of Spanish wine. So, you know, you got to give props to Jorge Ordonez, I think. He put Spain on the wine map, maybe for the wrong reasons, but he did put Spain on the wine map. Now I think there's a, there's a renaissance. I think, I, I think um, Spain was generations where we sort of lost our identity and we were chasing Parker points. And um, now there's a renaissance of people that are really sort of looking for these wines of, of place with drinkability and acidity and, um, you know, not leaving them on, on, on the vine so long and not over-extracting as much and just making prettier wines... Um, you know, I, I like to say that we look for wines that have good drinkability but don't compromise their place, their terroir, you know, because I think there's other people now, new people that are sort of, and I think it happens here in the States maybe too, where sometimes you're maybe going a little too, too far to reach this freshness, you know, and you're compromising a lot of the ripeness and varietal character. I think there's a balance, you know, that you can find, and that's what we try to find in our selections. Um, I think that's why we're here, you know, because now the the palette has changed, or it is changing, and where you do have people who feel like Rioja must be this big thing, that's legit, that's real, but it has changed. The winemaking, as the last panel said, has changed. They're figuring things out. 
they might have a formula, but it's not about that formula. It's really about the chefs that we follow, them being creative and like thinking and reinventing the wheel. And so the only reason we can be here is because the OGs were here and also because they have moved the palate into a new generation. It's like, I didn't like mushrooms growing up. Now I want mushrooms. I didn't like tomatoes growing up. Now I like tomatoes. The palate changes and sometimes it's in your own self and soul that happens. But a lot of times, you know, you, you're fed things and you start to like things because they're now what you know. And what you like. I think to that point, too, the, the people that are buying wine now are much younger than they used to be. Like, I'm 35, and I'm seeing 22-year-olds coming in and wanting to drink wine instead of having a beer or getting smashed on cocktails. Like, the excitement is there for people who, when I was 22, all I wanted was a beer. Now it's, like... That whole facade of wine being this hoity-toity thing has collapsed thanks to the people that were before us. And we have this opportunity to really, like, not only sell to our peers and people who are older than us, but also excite a younger generation. I was having this really weird conversation, actually, in Vienna last summer, and I ended up at a weird... I know. I ended up at a... Um, I ended up at a wine dinner with a young Austrian winemaker and a bunch of wine-adjacent people, and the median age was like, I don't know, 30, and the winemaker was 28, makes beautiful wines, um, and there was a doctor hanging out because he had fallen in love with this guy, Matthias Warnung's wines, and this physician was like 60 years old, and he had his teenage son with him, and I ended up talking to these two guys all night long because I was like, why are you here? How are you here? And he's like, oh my God, Matthias is wines. We follow him everywhere. Like now he's a young painter I'm a patron of, more or less. Um, and the, I was speaking to this physician and he said, well, how is it for you selling these wines in, in the United States? It must be so interesting. And I said, honestly, it's a struggle. Um, and he said, why? I said, well, I'm sure it's similar in Austria. You have people who expect a certain homogenized international style of wine. And that's been the case across the globe for the last like 25 years. And I said, but there are, what is it, like 380 million people in the United States now? And I think the most recent statistics are something like three to four million people, or like nine max, regularly drink wine. And he was shocked. He was absolutely shocked at, at that idea that the great majority of American people don't drink wine. He couldn't believe it. He sat there like processing it for a while, and he was like, every Austrian drinks wine. And I was like, I'm telling you, Americans do not drink wine, right? So... Even though it feels like, oh my God, natural wine has had this incredible movement and this motion over the last 10 years, and we can trace, at New York, we can trace our DNA to people who got there before us um, and how they influenced us. We're just beginning. Yeah. I mean, there's hundreds of millions of people in this country who do not drink well and, and who don't think that wine is for them and think that it's a fancy European product that they have no relationship to um, and that it's got to be expensive and they're so embarrassed for how, like, you know, how much of a caveman they are. Like, I still have friends in their mid-30s being like, don't be embarrassed of my wine smell. So I'm over at their house, and I'm like, you literally have no exposure to stuff to drink that's good. And I think there's a lot of work left to be done, you know. And in Europe, it's quite different because many people are raised for many, many generations drinking wine from the time they're kids. And a lot of us, as kids in America, come to it way late, you know. So 
there's still hundreds of millions of people us out there to be like, yeah, check this out and put it in their glass. And <laughs> I think that's a very, that's a very exciting thing, even if it means a ton of challenge along the way, you know? I don't know why I brought that up. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I mean, it probably doesn't represent like 5% of the total wine in the market, right? So, so. so there's definitely room for growth. And I think there's more and more people that are aware about it and are making very good natural wine, especially in Spain. Um, and uh, yeah, we're going to... Hopefully it grows, keeps growing. One question, maybe we can finish up with this, is what attempts or what structure do you guys use to help mentor people who are in their 20s who are working with you or freaking out about natural wine or freaking out about wine, period? What, what kind of mentoring, hand-holding, and advice do you give to your young colleagues? Or I can use a microphone. Um, yeah, I mean, we don't have here at Bergen the super intensive kind of wine classes that I came up in, uh, namely because we have a glass list here. And to speak to the impossibility of selling natural wine to the human who walks around this neighborhood, uh, for me it's very easy because I don't give them an option. We've never sold anything that wasn't supernatural. Most of what we sell is biodynamic. I only buy from friends. I only buy wine that I trust and, and know very intimately. We all know who we buy the wine from and, and how easy that is. And so kind of like the, for me, like this way of accessibility and how, how we are able to expand the hug of this natural wine into a community that maybe doesn't know otherwise is to not give them an option. Everything here is supernatural. If you want a glass of wine, that's what you're going to have. There's two bubbles. There's two white. There's two red. There's two rosé. There you go. Drink it or don't. And that opens eyes in like pretty phenomenal ways because there isn't a conversation. No one feels spoken down to. There's no pedantry about it. You know? And so for our staff, the education is every day you come in and you taste. And you taste everything every day because... I buy big case drops because we are we have a PA for 391 people here who are very big space. I go through a lot of wine, so I have the ability to buy big case drops of things, which means I'm able to sell things at a reasonable price. Um, and but it's always changing. It's just a it's just a glass list. There aren't you know there's nothing to sell aside from do you want one of two kinds of red wine today? Here you go. Taste both. Have one. Cool. You know, and like, and, and that's, it's, it's really cool because this community here didn't know about natural wine for the most part. Most communities didn't know about natural wine for the most part. I'm super lucky. I moved to Red Hook 10 years ago. Uh, the very first restaurant I ate in, in in Red Hook was way, way, way back in the day before I lived in New York. I moved here in 2007, and I think I went to 360 in 2003. I met Catherine Sayard, I'm sorry, Catherine May, uh, and we went and had an amazing dinner, and I met Arnaud, and it was like, holy fuck, what is this? It's all possible. And it's kind of his approach was, don't give anyone the option. This is what it is. There is no Romane Conti on this list. You cannot spend $500 on a bottle of wine. Here is wine. Drink it. You know. And so for our staff, like the education is 
I am always here. I will talk your ear off. Good Lord, most of the staff probably hates me for it. But like, I, I, the education is constant. It's just constant tasting. And we provide, you know, through the luxury of Google Docs and all of the things we can have on our phone, all of the information that anybody needs is all at their fingertips every day for talking points. But the reality here is that there really isn't that much to talk about. You want a glass of white wine, here are you two options. You don't like this one, have this one. You don't like both, cool, here's a beer. You know, that's, I, I guess that's what I have to say about that. I mean, I know I've definitely, I've been teaching a lot of people in their 20s. That's mostly who I've been spending time around for the last, like, decade in New York. First of all, because I was in my 20s, and now because I'm only hanging out with people in their 20s. Um, and the, the way to help young people, I think, actually genuinely learn about wine is um, to start them off. Hi. Is to start them off with... Um, the, the very basic rudimentary information. And actually, um, Pascaline talks about this a lot to, right, because the world of wine is so overwhelming to start people off with very basic, fundamental, um, palpable kind of techniques. Like, what is tannin? What is acidity? What is body? When you say big, what do you mean? Like, really helping people have kind of the toolkit, the mechanics, you know, and then actually teaching them how wine gets made. Like, I think that makes a huge difference. If they know what fermentation is, and they know what vinification is, and they know what an oak barrel is, and how it changes the impact of wine. Like, we talk about that stuff at work all the time. So that way, when your guest comes at you and they say, blah, 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 blue, 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 and you're like, okay, I'm, I can translate all of that into something very concrete. And so I'm not giving them exactly the thing they want, but I'm able to get it within the range, and actually every single one of my staff members is too. Um, and that's something that I wish the natural wine community would do significantly more is to actually educate people instead of just being like you like natural wine here you go kid like just throwing them in and being like rip a cork chug it down they'll like it too like it's a co-ferment um you know i like i i think that there is a way to go about this in a little bit more of a systemic and a little bit more of like a caring way which is to say you should be able to learn wine capital w and that way you can understand why people are so flipped out by these incredibly high levels of acidity, which are due to biodynamic farming. Also, that's, like a long, that's a long thread to follow, but like, and it, you it, can help your staff get there. It should be like one of the benefits of working in restaurants. I, I went to school to be a teacher, and it's the thing that I love the most is teaching wine class once a week. It's, it's the thing that like keeps me going. I'm the polar opposite. <laughs> <laughs> They charged me with teaching two classes a week, and I was like, I don't have time. I don't have time for this. But you do it, and it, it makes you better because there's always more to learn. But also, um, I guarantee you now, there is, no, there is no young mentee who is not, like, jumping at the bit to learn more, to understand, to taste. And a lot of times I'm in service, like, run around pouring wine for tables and they're like, oh, what's that? I'm like, I don't have time to taste you on this one. I will leave the glass here and we will talk about it later. But I think that younger generation or mentees, people that we mentor do kind of see where we, we may have been like trying to like figure it out. They do kind of see that, you know, I remember Rob being like, I don't know how I'm going to have a job in this life like this, in this wine life. And now they see that it is a thing, and they see their affairs, and they want to come. I can guarantee you five people were like, do you have enough tickets to rock? Do you have enough tickets to this? They want to come. They will show up. You're going to be there at 10 a.m.? I'll be there at 10 a.m. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be there at 10 (laughs) a.m. 
But the the energy and the excitement is there, and I think yeah. that that they they see they see the bigger picture. They see how it can be. It's 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 not a hidden thing necessarily anymore. It's very much forefront. And again, when you teach these classes, and you know you are yourself, and you've been through what we all have been through, your voice might sound a little different, it might resonate to them more, and they might connect more, and they might go to the wine shop now, and the wine shops are now not necessarily, um, I don't know, what was the, the old auction houses they used to buy from like back in Manhattan. Um, they can have like a, something nearby in there, tell me what they bought, take a picture. So the, the, the education continues to, like, it's like the gift that keeps on giving, like they, so far, at two places, and even me coming up at Estella was kind of the same way, where it is just kind of this, like, almost like this insatiable appetite. Um, so whatever you say, it's just like they're very much sponges, yeah. where it used to be like, you're a sponge, they're a sponge. It's like they're all yeah, it's sponges now. trying to find, it, find d- the good people. And something that I've always admired about Amanda is the amount of people that always come to events with you. Like, you bring your staff to things. It's about inclusivity and really fostering the people who care and bringing them up with you because if we're going to be on the rise, we want to bring those people that are going to then follow in our footsteps up with us at the same time. For me, it's a little different because I I feel like all of our customers and buyers and sales reps are already so knowledgeable. It's hard to teach them something they don't already know. So um, for me, it's more about producers teaching me and me transmitting to my customers you know, I can and only thank transmit you, thank you, thank message you and information, and um, yeah, but uh, that's why I find it's a little different on my end, but uh, yeah, I think that's what makes it so cool. I make people do inventory you. with me. <laughs> I'm like, let's count bottles. I want to thank our panelists very much for this fascinating conversation, and more to come. Thank you, Lou.